Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of God for the people of God. last two were like big vocal songs. All right, we're good. <clears throat> Following the resurrection, Jesus spent a couple weeks hanging out with the disciples. Before he ascended, according to Luke, he gave specific instructions to stay in Jerusalem and await the coming of the Holy Spirit. To pass the time, they took care of some business. They replaced Judas and I'm sure began to establish some sense of order to what would become the early church. Then Pentecost, bam, God poured out his Holy Spirit, and with the rush of a mighty wind and tongues of fire, the gathered disciples were transformed into beacons of grace, speaking to every nation and creed, calling out to all of humanity that salvation had come. Peter steps up to lead, and speaking with the authority of the risen Christ, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom our Lord God calls to him. Those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day around 3,000 people were added to their flock. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And they lived happily ever after. The end. No. I'm joking, of course. The story of our salvation and the future of Christianity is not yet so clearly fixed. There were many miraculous signs performed by the apostles. Peter and John healed a lame man. They spoke daily at Solomon's portico, a very public place um, right next to the temple. Um, that was there. They withstood threats from the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. Um, all of those men were getting really riled up because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is resurrection for the dead. They were even recognized as friends of Jesus. Jesus. This guy we just got rid of. And here we have all of his buddies coming back to do the same stuff. But the apostles grew bold. They even prayed for this boldness. 
In Acts chapter 5, Luke goes on to tell us that the apostles would gather daily in this portico. The people began to hold them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Great numbers of both men and women, so that they even carried um, the sick out into the streets. They laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, and they would bring in the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all of them cured. But just as the world is today, so too was the world during that time. It was full of people. Now, I don't know what your dealings are with people, but um, people can be flawed, People can be rude, mean, vicious, self-serving. People can be crazy, deceitful, fearful of changes to the status quo. So the high priest takes action. Together with the rest of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in prison. During the night, an angel of the Lord opens the prison doors and brings them out and says, Keep it up, boys. And so the next morning, they're back out at the temple on the portico at daybreak and went on with their teaching. This, of course, angered many of the Sadducees and Pharisees. Um, but instead of killing them, which they really wanted to do, uh, they had them, had them flogged and again ordered them not to speak the name of Jesus. And they let them go. As the apostles left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer such dishonor for the sake of Jesus' name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Now, this whole back and forth, as I'm sure you can tell, while exciting and motivating for the early church, is not sustainable. It almost feels like we're reading through a Robin Hood-esque back and forth between our brave and fearless protagonists and the clumsy and ill-planned ventures of local law enforcement. But this isn't a fairy tale. In fact, there seems to be a very deep disregard that this whole venture began with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. These men have killed before, and if pushed too far, they will do it again. And that's what happened. The disciples were increasing in number daily, so the 12 apostles called everyone together and chose seven additional leaders um, to help lead their growing flock. Among the seven was a man called Stephen, um, described as a man full of grace and power, who did great wonders and signs among the people. Um, they liked Stephen. Stephen, uh, bless his heart, may have just found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but ultimately, a group of other uh, men secretly instigated and planned to stir up the people and the elders and the scribes. They accused Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They arrested him and they brought him before the council. And Stephen, he laid it on thick. Again, that boldness that they've prayed for. He let them have it. All the way back to Abraham, through Moses on the mountain, he hits them again and again with the history of their people, how they have failed to recognize uh, God's true plan and live into that. And he wraps it all up with this. And Stephen's, the end of his speech is worthy of its own sermon series just within the context. But Stephen lets him have it. He says, you stiff-necked people. 
uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels. And yet you have not kept it. Needless to say, this did not go over well. They uh, dragged Stephen out of the temple, out of the city, and they stoned him. And here we get our first glimpse. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of their killing him. I learned um, that they had to lay their coats at the feet of Saul because they couldn't actually get a good throwing with them while they were wearing all of their garments. So they had to take them off and put them in a pile at the feet of someone they trusted in order to kill Stephen. And so here's Saul sitting behind a pile of coats. I envision like that cliche evil villain with a cat kind of moment watching the horror unfold. Um, but that's, what, that's kind of what this is. And that's why um, I'm telling you all of this as a means to convey the birth of a monster. Saul was nothing short of a McCarthy-style demagogue. Luke goes on to tell us that it was, in, in, it was on that day, the day Stephen died, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men were able to bury Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul... Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off both men and women and committing them to prison. Saul was there when Stephen became the first Christian martyr. He was even pleased by it. When the fury of the Jews ran with such violence and to such height against Stephen, it could not quickly stop itself nor run its course. Matthew Henry, a renowned Presbyterian minister and Bible commentator, um, goes on to paint a very grim picture of Saul. Calls him a zealous and busy young Pharisee who made havoc of the church. He did all he could to lay it to waste and ruin. He cared not what mischief he did to the disciples of Christ, nor knew when to stop. He aimed at no less than cutting off of the gospel, that the name of Jesus should be no more in remembrance. He was the fittest tool the chief priests could find to serve their purpose. He was the informer general against the disciples, a messenger of the great council to be employed in searching for meetings and seizing all that were suspected to favor that way. Saul was a rabbi, a bred scholar, a gentleman, but yet did not think it below himself to be employed in the vilest work of that kind. 
he entered into every house, making no difficulty of breaking open doors night or day, and having a force of men with him for that purpose. He entered into every house where they used to hold their meetings, or every house that had Christians, or even suspected of having Christians in it. No man was secure, no woman was safe. He took them with the utmost contempt and cruelty, men and women, and he dragged them through the streets." committed them to prison so that they may be tried and put to death unless they would renounce the name of Christ. And some, we find out later, were indeed compelled to do so. Of his own admission in later writings, Saul stated that not only did he lock up many of the saints in prisons, but when they were being put to death, he cast his vote against them. He writes, As I punished them often in all the synagogues, I also tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. And ultimately, it was on such a trip to Damascus to round up even more believers and bring them back to Jerusalem that Saul encountered the resurrected Christ who appeared to him as a flash of light. Rebuked by Christ, Saul was blinded and instructed to wait in Damascus, where for three days he neither ate nor drank. Now, as I was preparing to preach this morning, I came across a number of articles that described our scripture today as the most important event in human history, second from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Saul who we learn later was also called Paul, had remained a Jewish rabbi, we would be missing 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. Christianity's early major expansion to the Gentiles might have never happened without question if it was not for the power of Jesus Christ working through a willing servant like Ananias much of what we have come to understand and believe about the transforming power of a life rooted in God's mercy and grace would be completely lost. So let's look a little closer at this pivotal moment in the life of our faith. Ananias was asleep. A resident of Damascus, a devout disciple, Ananias now becomes part of a double vision A divine encounter in which both he and Paul are made aware of the next step. Ananias should proceed to the main road of Damascus. It was called Straight Street. It had great porches and gates at each end, uh, commerce and shops running along each side. Uh, It would be similar to our downtown mall is for Charlottesville or Fifth Avenue in New York. You would know where it was. It was the primary street and you would know where to go. And while there... Ananias is to look for Saul of Tarsus. As another note, when the Lord is speaking to Ananias here, the words, depending on which Bible you're using, are written in red. This is, uh, these are commands coming from the risen king. But still Ananias, he pushes back. Remember, Saul had come to Damascus to kill him to find him, to root him out and looking for other believers like Ananias. Saul had come to drag him through the streets. Ananias was not ignorant of Stephen's death and the persecution that swept through Jerusalem, but he now finds himself being called by Christ to go and seek out the very person 
he most likely was planning to run away from. And it is in this exchange, this pushback, where even after his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus is still dealing with people who don't want to listen. Without even acknowledging Ananias' misgiving, Jesus repeats himself, Go! You go! And here we are offered another glimpse of God's endless mercy, God's everlasting and true plan for our salvation. Jesus says, Go! I will handle it. You go. Your job is to be there. And I often find it helpful to look not only at what Jesus says, but to think about all the things that Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, go with condemnation, go with damnation, go with accusatory and reprimand this person. Jesus says, go. I have chosen him. I will handle the discipline. You, Ananias, do not get to choose who is worthy of my grace. You, Ananias, do not get a say in their punishment. We, church, are quick to agree and hold on to God's righteous anger. After all, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But we are equally as quick to forget that so too does salvation belong in the hands of our crucified Redeemer. Our job is to be there. This, my friends, is why Jesus Christ is so very, very important. There is no burden too great, no sin too evil, no soul too lost that cannot be lifted, redeemed, and reconciled by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In this moment, in the face of overwhelming fear and what he believed to be almost certain doom, Ananias begins his walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he comes out on the other side, addressing his former enemy as his brother. Through invoking the powerful name of Jesus Christ, scales fall from Saul's eyes. His sight was restored, and he was baptized. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this same name? Has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul became increasingly more devout and bold. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. My friends, we are called to follow the Lord of all creation, the Alpha and Omega. We follow a man who can quiet the storm with merely his voice and walks across the ocean. We follow a God who raises the dead and heals the lame, a God who loves us beyond measure, so much so that he put on human flesh, stepped down from eternity to walk with us side by side and ultimately take on all that is wrong with this world on his shoulders and carry it to his death. That is who we follow. And I promise you, he will not lead you to a place where his grace 
will not sustain you. He won't. So this morning, with that blessed assurance, I invite you to ask yourself, where is God calling you to go? Is God calling you to go to the prisons, to visit the elderly, to a political rally, to the haven, to an event in Lee Park, to Haiti, to Lithuania, to the mountains of Appalachia, to the house of a friend or even a family member. Sometimes there is no way to know what good will come from our endeavors outside these walls, what good will come from our interactions in the lives of those we meet. Yes, it might be scary, a little dangerous, and new. But as we've seen with the conversion of Paul, we cannot, should not, risk the consequences of what may happen if we don't. I'll close with a poem by St. Teresa of Avila. You may have heard it before. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. So go. In the name of Jesus Christ, go. Amen.